Derek John Phelps coming to you today live and direct from Newmanstown, Pennsylvania, here on this beautiful sunny day on Friday, August 19th, 2022. Welcome to the broadcast. <clears throat> well, today I'm going to deal with a topic concerns concerning the legal profession in the United States of America and the jurisdiction that is court sitting federal and state since April 25th, 1938, with the evil and wicked Erie decision. It's important for you listeners to understand this. Remember, you can understand anything, you just got to be taught. You're not stupid, you're just ignorant. So it's my purpose to bring you knowledge in this matter so that you can take it from there. And every preacher should do this. This is his duty, to bring you truth in every facet of government, science, whatever, so that you can do your duty where you're at. Ephesians 5.11 Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Reprove means to bring to light. Tell the teacher. <laughs> I'm going to tell on you. That's what the preacher, the man of God, should be doing all the time, every day in every way. Telling on the powers of the papacy and the Jesuits that rule it, as well as all of its subordinate religions, including the satanic religion of Islam, run by the Pope. And by the way, any religion that has blasphemy laws doesn't belong in this country. And that includes the papacy. So bye-bye to the papacy and bye-bye to Islam. You want to have your nations with blasphemy laws? You can be poverty-stricken, have no middle class, and be backwards like you deserve. You can believe no freedom of conscience, where I can bring the Bible into your country and preach Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. If that's a blasphemy when I say that he's God manifest in the flesh, then you need to have your own country where you can enforce your Sharia and your blasphemy laws, but it's not here in America. Not welcome here. You need to go back to the hell holes you came from. So, we are going to expose now the unfruitful works of darkness of the American legal profession, starting with the Supreme Court, when it, on April 25th, 1938, overturned a great, wonderful case called Swift v. Tyson of 1842, and thereby did away with federal general common law. And they did away, the Supreme Court did away with federal general common law when the question was not even before the court. Remember, if you're going to bring a, an appeal to the Supreme Court, you have to have raised the question in the lower court, in the district court, and then you bring the question to the Court of Appeals, and then when they, they don't rule for you, then they bring it to the Supreme Court. On a, it's called a writ of certiorari. But the question must be raised in the court of original jurisdiction where you brought the case. In the Erie decision, the Supreme Court decided a matter, a question that had never been brought before the district court below it. That was a sin and a crime by the Supreme Court called the Roosevelt Court. It's a court where a couple of justices were appointed by FDR, 
in February of 1938 in preparation for the April decision of the Erie decision of 1938. Those two criminal Supreme Court justices were Stanley Reed and Hugo Black. And Hugo Black was a member of the second Ku Klux Klan that had been created in 1915 in Stone Mountain, Georgia by a Masonic Methodist minister. And Hugo Black was a member of it. FDR appointed a member of the Ku Klux Klan to the Supreme Court. What's that do for all you leftist, socialist, communist, FDR worshippers? And these two guys, in conjunction with another wicked sinner named Harlan Fisk Stone and Louis Brandeis, a Jew, first Jew ever named to the Supreme Court, Louis Brandeis would give the opinion of the court of the Erie decision. Tompkins versus Erie Railroad, 1938. Check it out on the web. So, with Louis Brandeis giving the opinion of the court, later on, when the new right comes to power, they can blame the Jews for doing away with federal general common law. And doing away with federal general common law means they're going to do away with civilian due process of law with regard to common law, but it would not do so with equity. The Erie decision did not touch what's called the Article Three judicial power of equity. It only did away with Article Three judicial power, common law. Yeah. And they kept that Article Three jurisdiction of equity for themselves to be kept in chambers by a judge for identity hearings for those that the court could not establish it's in personam jurisdiction over the individual person and proceed according to the course of admiralty maritime jurisprudence. Sound, comp sound complicated? I don't mean it to me. Just remember this, that our Constitution in Article 3, where the, we the people conferred our judicial power to the Supreme Court. We also confer that judicial power to inferior courts that would be created by the Congress. And that was done almost immediately after the ratification of the Constitution in 1789 with what is known as called the Judiciary Act. Great and wonderful act. George, our beloved white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and later Baptist, was a Baptist by this time, baptized by John Gano in the Hudson River in 1783. 1789, he signed the Judiciary Act into law, which created the federal district courts, or the district courts of the United States. The same district courts that exist today in this country. They're beautiful, wonderful, constitutional federal district courts. They're actually national district courts because we went from a federal government to a national government with the proclaimed ratification of the 14th Amendment on July 28, 1868. So these federal district courts are were created by the Judiciary Act of 1789, and they're wonderful. There's nothing wrong with the federal district court. And these 
federal district courts have what's called Article Three judicial power. And the judges who sit, the United District, district Judges of the United States sit in these courts are called Article Three judges. In 1965, thereabouts, the Congress created an inferior group of judges called magistrate judges. They are Article One judges. And these magistrate judges are used to decide matters of fact on behalf of the Article Three judge. Prior to 1965, thereabouts, there was no such thing as a magistrate judge. There was no such thing as an Article I magistrate judge sitting in an Article III court doing the grunt work, for lack of a better term, for the Article III judge. And this is very important that you comprehend this. So, <clears throat> we have the judicial power of the United States extending to the district courts of the United States in 1789, because those courts were created by Congress, as enabled by Article 3 of the Constitution. Nothing wrong with these federal district courts. And the jurisdictions that these courts were to sit in were at law, that means a common law, in equity, that's equity, and in Admiralty Maritime Jurisdiction. So the Article Three District Courts of the United States, with their Article Three judges, could sit from 1789 to 1789 he was the authority in 1789. The next jurisdiction that the Article Three District Courts could sit in was equity. This was English American equity that had been tempered by the Protestant Reformation and first perfected by Lord Nottingham in 1680 thereabouts when equity became the highest jurisprudence in world history. It was meant to supplement the deficiencies of the common law. Equity was the pleading of the common man. And all that he was concerned about was justice, that which was fair, just, and right. A wonderful jurisprudence. Now, one of the American masters of equity 
is the Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story. He has a two-volume set on equity. You need to get it. Equity Jurisprudence was also a mastered by a man named a Tennessee State Judge and this is called Susan Chancery by by uh, <laughs> it loses me right now Susan Chancery Paul Maroy was another great American jurist who was a master of equity so we Americans well by the way there's no such thing as equity that we have in the Roman civil law and equity is only for English speakers it's not in Spanish So, the court can sit at common law. Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson was the master of equity in the Tennessee Chancery Courts. And the treatise he wrote was called Suits and Chancery. You need to get it. The other jurisdiction the Supreme Court could sit in was called Admiralty Maritime. And the Supreme Court, and the district courts, I should say, the district courts could sit in this jurisdiction. Admiralty Maritime Jurisdiction had both a criminal and a civil jurisdiction. And it was for matters that had taken place on the high seas or within the ebb and flow of the tide on land here in the United States. So, Admiralty Jurisdiction, Admiralty Maritime Jurisdiction, the high seas and within the ebb and flow of the tides. Criminal and civil jurisdiction. Now, you see the three jurisdictions the district courts had. They had jurisdiction with regard to common law matters on the land. They had jurisdiction with regard to equity matters where equity needed to supplement the common law on land. And then they had maritime admiralty procedures, which was on the high seas, all the way to the ebb and flow of the tides into this country. Those are the three civilian jurisdictions that the District Court of the United States possessed. And it was beautiful. Justice was served. And it was a civilian due process of law, whether it be a common law procedure, whether it be an equity procedure, whether it be an admiralty slash maritime procedure. The case that defended the federal general common law was a case handed down in 1842 called Swift versus Tyson. It had to do with commerce. And in that case, it was a unanimous decision by all nine members of the Supreme Court. And the jurist who gave that decision was Justice Joseph Story one of America's five greatest Supreme Court justices. The Jesuits hated that decision. The Jesuits hate common law. The Jesuits love Roman civil law. They hate English-American common law. 
because of common law, you have certain God-given rights that are acknowledged and protected. And Roman civil law, you have no such thing. You only have privileges and immunities given by the military dictator or the king. And when you control the king, you control the judiciary. Back in a moment, 24-7 will bring you. Schoenfeld is continuing today with exposing the unfruitful works of darkness of the American judiciary, the American Bar Association, all of the uh, all of the law schools in this country, every last one of them, to show you what they have done to us. Okay? They should have been our protectors. They are our persecutors. They're actively involved in the destruction of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and Baptist middle class. Actively involved. And I want to show you the great secrets that they don't talk about and they don't want you to know because they regard you as nothing more than animals to be fleeced, shorn, and then eaten. Okay? And their destruction the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and Baptist middle class that founded this nation, that built this nation on biblical principles, that's a fact. It has nothing to do with white supremacy. It has everything to do with the facts. So, I've touched first upon the facts that the Constitution, we the people that wrote the Constitution through our representatives, granted Article 3, judicial power to the Supreme Court, and we also enable the Congress to create courts of inferior jurisdiction, namely the District Courts of the United States and the Circuit Courts of the United States. So, we go to our next step. The Jesuits hated the American common law, because the American common law limits powers of the government to the rights held by the citizens. The Jesuits are the great absolutists. They believe in unlimited power for their courts, for their Congress, Parliament, and for their king, for their commander-in-chief, president. They love unlimited powers. So therefore, when they take over the commander-in-chief, or when they take over the Supreme Court, or when they take over the Congress, what those people do is they do with unlimited powers, especially now during a time of national banking emergency, state of war since March 9th, 1933. So, the Jesuits' great design was to take our little glorious republic centralized power in Washington, which they did in 1868 with the 14th Amendment, then create a government for the city of Washington, District of Catholics, which they did in 1871, so that the District of Columbia would ultimately be the seat, the Rome of North America, a sovereign state whereby, as the sovereign state of Vatican City is overseen by the Pope as a king, that would be the pattern after which Washington, D.C. would be made a sovereign city under the commander-in-chief as a 
king is an emperor since March 9, 1933. And Alexander Stevens tells us in his great work, Constitution of View of the Late War Between the States, that the purpose of the of Yankee North was to first centralize power and then create an empire. They centralized power in 1868 and they created their empire when they imposed emergency war powers, military government on March 9, 1933, and they ousted civilian government on the same day. Temporarily, of course. Temporarily for the last 89 years. I hope I live a nice temporary life of 89 years. <laughs> so, the Jesuits in their conspiracy at law had to move the country from common law to Roman civil law. Roman civil law is their darling. They teach it right alongside of canon law, taught it for centuries at the University of Bologna in Italy. But they hate the common law. And so therefore, the Jesuits got America into World War I using that criminal Woodrow Wilson, the apostate Presbyterian, whose father happened to be a Presbyterian minister in Staunton, Virginia. Woodrow Wilson brought the country into World War I. World War I violated the great Monroe Doctrine, whereby this civilian government of the United States participated in the invasion of a foreign European country, which it should never have done. And it did so at the behest of the Jesuits at Georgetown for the destruction of the historic white Saxon Protestant Empire of Germany called the Second Reich. Second Reich was started in 1871, thereabouts, after the French surrendered to the Germans at Sedan and they had their Treaty of Versailles, or their Treaty, pardon me, in 1870, ending the Franco-Prussian War. And with the, this wonderful Protestant Second German Reich, it would continue until 1918. With the end of World War I, the wicked and sinful Versailles Treaty, and the American people participated in the destruction of their white Saxon German Protestant brothers during World War I, a great sin and a crime. So, during that war, there was an act passed called the Trading with the Enemy Act. You can get it on a book, it's a book by it called Trading with the Enemy by Charles Higgum, it's a classic. Higgum, H-I-G-H-A-M, Charles Higgum. And the Trading with the Enemy Act was passed on October 6, 1917. That act conferred a special jurisdiction on the district courts of the United States. It's called Section 17. It's codified now at 50, Title 50, USC, United States Code, Section 4316. 4316 is where this jurisdiction given to the district courts 
to enforce the provisions of the Trading with the Enemy Act was conferred. Everybody with me? And that's okay, because this is a special jurisdiction. It's a military jurisdiction, because it's passed. The whole act comes out of Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11. War powers granted to Congress. And so it is a war powers military jurisdiction that was granted to the district courts to enforce provisions of the Trading with the Enemy Act, which is just fine. There's only one problem. The Jesuits and their agents in the Congress did not repeal Trading with the Enemy Act after the end of World War I. They left it in place, and they amended Trading with the Enemy Act some 18 times, from 1918 to 1930. Amended it 14 times, pardon me. From 1918 to 1930. Fashioning it and keeping it in place for 1933, when the Jesuits had planned for the imposition of emergency war powers military government to deal with the Great Depression that their agents had caused, one of them being Knight of Malta, Joe Kennedy, who was the chief short seller of stock on Wall Street that crashed the market. So that created the necessary agitation and Great Depression that would justify FDR when he would come into office stating that he would invoke war powers to, to deal with the crisis as great as if they were invaded by a foreign foe. And you can read this in his inaugurational address, 1933. When FDR invoked the Trading with the Enemy Act, he then based his proclamation 2039 on Section 5B of an act of October 6, 1917. It doesn't say trading with the Enemy Act in the proclamation 2039. But that's what he did. He rested upon Section 5B of the Trading with the Enemy Act to call the American people hoarders, as they were going to get their gold in the banks, called them hoarders. And when they were thus deemed hoarders, they were now deemed enemies under Trading with the Enemy Act. And deemed enemies under the Trading with the Enemy Act, all their property was deemed enemy property. That's everything they possessed including themselves, was deemed enemy property. And therefore, when FDR proclaims his emergency and he invokes uh, Section 5B of the Trading with the Enemy Act, he imposes emergency war powers, military government, and began his war against we the people of the United States, March 6, 1933, which was a Monday, two days after his inauguration on Saturday. But that proclamation was not deemed the law until Congress could act. So in that proclamation, FDR shut down the banks for four days. 
with a banking holiday. And you can see this portrayed somewhat in the movie with Jimmy Stewart. It's a wonderful life. So for four days, people couldn't get their money. They couldn't make any withdrawals. They couldn't get their gold. Driving them to deeper desperation. And so when Thursday comes around, which is March 9th, the people are in hysteria. And the Congress is told by Jimmy Burns, that criminal out of South Carolina, and the alter ego of FDR, and a servant of the Jesuits, he told that Congress, you've got to pass this emergency banking relief act in 40 minutes. You're going to have 20 minutes to debate for it, 20 minutes against it, and you're going to pass it unamended. And nobody had a copy. Nobody knew who wrote it. That's the emergency banking relief act. Codified now at 12 United States Code 95A, which has been omitted in the statutes of the United States Code and has been cleverly hidden under 50 United States Code 4305B in a footnote. So you can't find it. The most important statute in the United States Code has been hidden in a footnote. So, he implements his emergency war powers military government. Congress comes along under the, under the authority of Trading with the Enemy Act, Section 5B, and they approve and confirm every proclamation from the President and Secretary of Treasury beginning on March 4th to the present. Thereafter, hereafter. Carte blanche for every proclamation any President or Secretary of Treasury is going to make. Then as soon as Congress was declared to have that passed, FDR issues right after, on Thursday night, probably 8, 9 o'clock, he issues his Proclamation 2040, which continues Proclamation 2039 until a termination proclamation is given and terminates Proclamation 2040 and Proclamation 2039, whereby the President is now the all-powerful Commander-in-Chief and his nation is the District of Columbia deemed the United States and from this nation he wages war and later on the District of Columbia is going to be given a flag in the 1950s like 1951 thereabouts it has a flag only sovereign nations have a flag prior to this the District of Columbia had no flag and the proclamation proclamation 2039 was issued from the city of Washington while there was yet civilian government Proclamation 2040 will be issued from the District of Columbia four days later. So what the Jesuits have done is they have now imposed an emergency war power military government under Article 1 of the Constitution. It is an Article 1 government created out of a statute. It's an emergency war powers military government for the national banking emergency and state of war. But the Jesuits had one more thing to do. They had to get rid of the civilian due process in the federal district courts. And they had to replace that civilian due process at law, a common law, in equity, and in admiralty maritime. They had to replace those three jurisdictions in civilian due process of law or I should say, yeah, they had to replace the three jurisdictions as civilian due process of law with an emergency war powers military jurisdiction 
from Section 17 of the Treaty with the Enemy Act. So therefore, on April 25th, 1938, the Supreme Court issues its infamous Erie decision when it decides there is no more general federal common law civilian due process procedure. And when they decided that, that created a void, a vacuum within the district court. It could no longer proceed at common law with a civilian due process because of that decision. Well, waiting in the wings to fill that vacuum with Section 17 of the Trading with the Enemy Act, the Congress had conferred its emergency war powers military jurisdiction to enforce the provisions of the Trading with the Enemy Act. So now the entire country will be under Trading with the Enemy Act. All the district courts will then begin to sit an emergency war powers military jurisdiction derived from 50 U.S.C. 4316. You read that statute, my friend. Right out of trading with the Trading with the Enemy Act jurisdiction statute. There, John Fells, back in a moment, tracing the wickedness of the judiciary in the hands of the Jesuits and what it has done to us, and then how we can reverse it. Laid out the past, have laid out what they've done to you, what they've done to us. Oh, by the way, they reduced every American, which was part of we the people, because we composed the sovereignty. Remember, you're not a sovereign. We composed together the sovereignty of the United States of America, secured by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, and reduced all of us, blacks and whites, and Asians, and Hispanic Americans, reduced us all to the status of enemies under Trading with the Enemy Act and belligerents under the Hague Convention, which regulates as a law of war when under military occupation. I told you the Commander-in-Chief seized all the property, every person, place, and thing, because everybody's an enemy belligerent, and property follows the status of the owner. And they will use this property as collateral for the national debt that the Federal Reserve will create for the benefit of the emergency war powers military government to finance its military and its communist quest around the world for the benefit of the Pope. Because the greatest communist government in the world is in Washington. So, what I decided to do was, I decided that I was going to bring another case in district court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. It's about my third or fourth one, maybe now. And I thought I'd bring a miscellaneous case to see if it could be decided in chambers in exclusive equity jurisdiction. Because remember, exclusive equity still exists. Every decision didn't do away with equity, it did away with the common law. So I filed this case in January, and the judge, the Article Three judge, who's Jennifer P. Wilson, ordered that the case should be closed, my $49 returned to me, and that a regular case should be filed for $402 thereabouts for this matter. So I was the one who sued Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, 
because I wanted a, among other things, a full accounting. But what I really wanted is I wanted to get the court to admit that it cannot sit in Article Three judicial power, exclusive equity, to litigate. Because whenever you go into a federal district court, you will always, always, always see military colors on display. I've seen them in Philadelphia. I've seen them in Harrisburg. I've seen them in Kansas City. Every federal district court that I've ever been in is all flying military colors. Let's say flag trimmed on three sides with gold fringe and or has gold cords and tassels. And the court in Kansas City, Missouri didn't have gold fringe on three sides, but it had gold cords and tassels with good old Judge Whipple's court. Whipple. Mm -hmm. So, they're sitting in emergency war powers military jurisdiction in every litigation or in every prosecution. It's sitting in a criminal jurisdiction and a civilian jurisdiction within its emergency war powers military jurisdiction. The question is, what jurisprudence is it following? Is it following common law jurisprudence? Well, we know it can't because of the Erie decision. Is it following equity jurisprudence? We know it can't because that's a civilian jurisprudence and it's sitting in emergency war powers. And equity jurisprudence is just in the back room in chambers. What jurisprudence is it following? Well, with the imposition of military government and everybody deemed to be an enemy, all of our property on the high seas was deemed prize of war, it was seized, and all of our property on land was deemed booty of war. It's all seized. And therefore, since that's the case, the military jurisdiction imposed by Trading with the Enemy Act is in place and proceeding according to the mode and jurisprudence of Admiralty Maritime Jurisprudence. It's not an Admiralty Court. It's sitting in emergency war powers, military jurisdiction. It is a Article Three Constitutional Court sitting in Article One Emergency War Powers Military Jurisdiction, proceeding according to the course and mode of Admiralty Jurisprudence. Because that jurisprudence regulates navigation and commerce on the land as well as the high seas. So I brought a case wanting the judge to admit that they could not sit in emergency war powers military, that they could not sit in civilian due process of law. It's called Article 3 Civilian Due Process of Law, as opposed to Article 1 Trading with the Enemy Act jurisdiction military due process of law. So, I instituted the case. I filed my final motion, and I want to read it to you. Motion to dismiss. Since I didn't make service of process on Secretary of Treasury, the judge told me, you got 10 days to tell me why you didn't make service of process. If not, I'm going to dismiss this case without prejudice. Without prejudice means you can bring it back again if you want to. So here, I just said, I'm going to have a motion to dismiss. Comes now, so-and-so, plaintiff pro per, and propria persona, not pro se, whose name is not a nom de guerre, name of war, all caps, by virtue of state court decree declaring the following facts. Remember, in every caption of every one of their cases, they capitalize that plaintiff and they capitalize the defendant. That further shows it is, an, it is emergency war powers 
jurisdiction proceeding according to the course of admiralty, juris, admiralty jurisprudence. There's nothing in the rules that say the names have to be in all capital letters. On January such and such, the day this action was filed, plaintiff filed a motion requesting court to sit in Article Three Old American Exclusive Equity Jurisdiction. Two, on March 14, 2022, the court addressed plaintiff with the name of war and on the gear, all caps, Eric John Phelps, den denied said motion, stating the request was improper, including attendant legal citations. What do you mean improper? On March 23, 1922, plaintiff filed an amended motion titled, quote, Motion for Court to Sit in Article III Judicial Power and uh, provide civilian due process of law. Plaintiff, however, filing the the pleading to be incorrect, finding it incorrect, filed the motion to dismiss, said second motion, said motion to deny was sent to the court, accompanied with a second amended motion for court to sit in Article 3 judicial power. So I finally got it right. And I just did this on March 29th, 2022. Four, hampered with limited knowledge of the law, plaintiff regarded the court's statement, recited in paragraph two above, as incomplete, telling me it's improper, lacking clear explanation. Plaintiff sought to know if it is in fact possible for this court to sit in Article Three judicial power, quote-unquote, or if doing so would be improper, quote-unquote, as she said, this is a magistrate judge, and her name is um, Mihalichik, Mihalichik, Chief Magistrate Judge. He's deciding this matter for the Article Three judge, Jennifer Wilson. And uh, if it would be improper and thus impossible Impossible for the court to sit in Article 3 judicial power. Plank 5. Plaintiff knows this court generally sits in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2, Clause 11, yeah, Clause 11, quote, Emergency War Powers Military Jurisdiction, quote, conferred by 50 U.S.C. 4316. That's the Trading with the Enemy Act jurisdiction. Further evidence by military colors defined by Armor Regulation 840-1010C4 on further on constant display in this court as well as within the entire federal courthouse. When you go in the federal courthouse, you see two military flags right by the, the marshals when you've got to check in there. Six, further evidence in the court is sitting in emergency war powers military jurisdiction. Both plaintiff and defendant treated as artificial persons, being legal fictions, as a matter of course. <clears throat> Remember, you're clothed with a legal fiction. you got this all-caps entity clothing you. These federal courts cannot see you. They only see the legal fiction that you're clothed with as an enemy and a belligerent. That's your old cap's name. They're always identified with a war name spelled in all uppercase letters, i.e. a nom de guerre, name of war. Seven. Therefore, whether it concerns civil or criminal matters, it appeared to plaintiff this court generally sits in both a subject matter jurisdiction as well as in a personal jurisdiction derived from Article 1, Section 8, Subdivision 11, war powers, quote-unquote, i.e. Article 1 legislative power to be to the exclusion of Article 3, Section 2, Subdivision 1, judicial power. The court's sitting in a legislative power, not Article 3 judicial power. So my motion is for judicial power. Eight, it appeared to plaintiff the above war powers jurisdiction was conferred on this court October 6, 1917, by Section 17 of Trading with the Enemy Act. Pardon me, for the enforcement of that act during a state of war, World War One. Nine, this above jurisdiction derived from Article Two legislative power, Article One legislative power, is to the exclusion of Article Three judicial power, which is in the which in the past always provided a non-military war powers, civilian due process of American common law or an American equity, whether auxiliary, concurrent, or exclusive equity. Those are the three kinds of equity. Ten. 
Therefore, plaintiffs ought to know whether this court could ever sit in Article III judicial power, or must it always sit in Article I legislative power during the state of national bank emergency state of war declared by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, March 6, 1933, by Proclamation 2039. Said proclamation was allegedly approved in quote unquote, by Congress on March 9, 1933, by the Emergency Banking Relief Act. United States Code 95A, now cleverly omitted from Title 12 and consigned to a footnote in Title 50. Proclamation 2039 was then continued by FDR's subsequent Proclamation 2040 until the issuance of a termination proclamation, having never transpired to this day. 11. It appeared to plaintiff that since the eerie decision of April 25, 1938, when the Roosevelt Supreme Court abolished federal general common law, i.e. civilian due process of law, when the question was not even before the court, this court has never sat in Article III judicial power, further evidenced by the court's continuous display of military colors during all litigation. Remember, military colors, Article I power. No military colors, a genuine flag of the United States, Article Three power. They never have a regular American flag flying in their courts. Further, plaintiff question whether an Article One magistrate judge has the power to address this question on behalf of the Article Three United States judge. Fourteen. As the court knew, it was incumbent upon the court to resolve plaintiff's questions as to the fundamental man matters of both subject matter and personal jurisdiction before the court could proceed to a disposition of the merits. In other words, to answer my complaint. 15. However, the court refused to grant or deny plaintiff's second amended motion for the court to sit in Article III judicial power. 16. With said motion filed with the court on March 29, 2022, the court could have granted or denied plaintiff's motion within the 90-day period of time during which service of process was to be made on defendant. So they could have done it either way, but they didn't. 17. Plaintiff was waiting for the court's response to said motion, for which reason no service of process was made on defendant. 18. As a result of the above, plaintiff has concluded the non-response of the court evidence is the following. I get this. This is what I concluded and it's in my motion to dismiss. 8. The court could, could not have granted said motion for Article III judicial power because the court, since April 25, 1938, the infamous day of the criminal eerie decision, has no Article III judicial power in which to litigate any matter, civil or criminal, within the confines of a civilian due process of law, that's at law or inequity. It couldn't have granted my motion. And B, the court could not have denied my motion, because the court would then be forced to admit on the record that it can only sit in the emergency war powers military jurisdiction granted to the court by the Trading with the Enemy Act of October 6, 1917. Said act imposed by Congress by its war powers, Article 1, Section 8, Subdivision 11 of the Constitution. This would have sent a shockwave throughout the entire federal and state judicial systems. There would have been a judicial great awakening, quote unquote, or possibly result in attempted assassination, as was the case with the United States District Judge Esther Salas in 2020 when involved in the Jeffrey Epstein case. That federal district judge would have openly denied my motion and told we're sitting in, federal, in, in emergency war powers, she would have been assassinated. That's a secret you cannot know. Wherefore, plaintiff motions this honorable Article Three District Court of the United States created by our Glorious Judiciary Act of 1789 to dismiss this case 
without prejudice, that means I can come back someday, plaintiff praying for the day that the criminal eerie decision will be reversed by the Supreme Court and our Anglo-Saxon heritage of civilian due process of law, both a common law and American equity, would be restored, bringing justice to men and women seeking relief, no longer being deemed enemies, quote-unquote, as a result of being clothed with an artificial person, quote-unquote, a legal fiction. And I end it by saying, God help us. And bold. Well, yesterday, I get her response. Report and recommendation from Mahalchik, the chief magistrate judge. And she's referring it to Judge Connor, who used to be the chief judge of the district court in the Middle District of Pennsylvania. He's the big boy. Here's what she decides. I'll go to the last page, page four. She says, after she dismisses without prejudice, she says, Phelps' motion for the court to set to sit in Article Three judicial power to provide civilian process of law, quote-unquote. Motion to deny plaintiff's motion for the court to sit in Article Three judicial power to provide civilian due process. And motion for the court to sit in Article Three judicial power, that's my second one, be denied as moot. And the clerk's directed to close this action. So my motion for civilian due process was denied as moot. What does moot mean? Let's go to Black's Fifth and just take a look here. We read, Question is moot when it appears no actual controversy or where the issues have ceased to exist. Listen, civilian due process of law has ceased to exist. So to answer, so she deemed the motion is moot. Goes on, generally an action is considered moot when it no longer presents a justifiable controversy because issues involved have become academic or dead. Case in which the matter in dispute has already been resolved and hence one not entitled to judicial intervention unless the issue is a reoccurring one or likely to be raised again between the parties. When it's moot, the matter's over. It cannot have any practical effect on the existing controversy. Prevents no actual controversy because the issues have ceased to exist. Article 3, civilian due process of law and judicial power has ceased to exist. It's moot. And that's why she would never grant or deny my motion. How do you like that? You like your wonderful district court sitting in emergency war powers? Treating you as an enemy belligerent? You like that? They can never see a living, breathing man or woman in any of them, in the federal district courts in this country. All they see are legal fictions with which you're clothed and will give you your emergency war powers, military due process, proceeding according to the course of admiralty jurisprudence. That's all you get, boy. Think about it. Time to do something. Time to repeal. Time to overrule the Erie decision or just declare independence about that. We're there, John Phelps. <laughs>